If you're new with this, we've been in a lengthy series on the book of Ephesians. We really believe as a church, the Bible speaks um, wisdom into our lives right where we are today. And so we've been going through the book of Ephesians, listening to God speak into our lives. And for new believers, this has just been incredible. The, the book of Ephesians was written to young Christians to understand all the blessings they have that come in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if, if you're a seasoned believer, I'll bet you've been challenged too by the depths of these teachings of the Apostle Paul and how he encourages us to go further and further, to know God more and more. And if you're brand new, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus or if this sounds kind of foreign to you, I want to let you know that, that this book has application to you too because one of the themes of the book, we talked about it last week, is Jesus died on a cross for you to break down the barriers between you and God and you and other people in your life. See, sin has the effect of breaking down relationships, of separating us from each other and separating us from God. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, removed the wall of separation. Now, that was a figurative way of of saying that that God has removed the barriers because all through the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people worshiped in a temple that had dividers. There was a thick curtain that separated people from the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go beyond that curtain once a year and with a sacrifice of animal blood to offer to the Lord. Outside of that was a courtyard of of the priests, the the courtyard of the women, and then outside of that was a courtyard of the Gentiles. They all had their separate areas that they were confined to. And if you remember last week, if you were a Gentile, which most of us are, if you crossed the line and went into the temple, there was actually a sign above the door that basically said this, if you cross this line, you do so at the risk of your own life. You could get killed for doing that. But Paul said that, that Jesus, through, the, through his sacrifice on the cross, has broken down that dividing wall, has, has, has made men and women equal in Christ, have made Jews and Gentiles one in Christ. In fact, Jesus, except Paul uses this analogy of the two became one man, that in Christ we are like one person, the body of Christ. It's a picture of the church. Now, the Jews had a hard time accepting this. And if you read through the New Testament, Jesus tells them to go into all the world and make disciples. He tells them to start in Jerusalem and to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But for many, many years, they stay confined to Jerusalem. Why? Because it was very hard for them to accept the Gentiles. Peter had to have his kind of head knocked a little bit in his dramatic dream for him even to realize that God loves the Gentiles as much as he loves them. And yet those on the outside, the Gentiles, were so thrilled that for the first time they now were accepted as equals in God's sight. One body united, Jew and Gentile, all together in one. And that picture of the body is a picture of the church. Sometimes it's called the body of Christ. But we're going to learn about some other pictures of the church as well today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ephesians, the second chapter. We're going to read about that and learn of three Um, pictures of the church today. So I'm going to start reading with chapter 2, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
The task of a, of a good teacher is to take complex things, break them down, and make them simple. And I think the Apostle Paul does that in those images that he gives us today, images about the church. Now, why this is so important is because many of us have foggy ideas of what the church is, or maybe negative ideas. If you go to the average person on the street and ask them, what do you think about the church? You'd probably get some very warped ideas. You'd have people expressing personal pain of their own encounters with church, maybe negative experiences. Maybe you'd have people... Uh, identifying churches that they've seen on the news or a denomination that's made some decision that they don't agree with. And so people can have some very negative views of the church, but Paul actually gives us some very beautiful pictures of the church in this passage. And what he tells us is this, that you come closer to God through his church. This whole passage of scripture, if you go back to last week, it says, you who are far have been brought near. And I want to share with you, I think it's a pretty amazing progression of how God brings us near, and I would say even closer than you would even think. So the first image of the church that he gives here is he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are a citizen in the kingdom of God. As a believer, you are a citizen in this church, which is pictured as the kingdom of Christ. Now, the Jews understood the idea of kingdom because they were part of a kingdom, at least They didn't start that way, but they became that way. See, God established Israel, and he was their king. He was the one who guided them. He was the one to give them direction. He he was present in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But along the way, they said, we want to have a king like the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. They have someone who sits in the throne. They have someone who makes edicts. They have someone who leads them into battle. We want a king like that. And God says, really? I'm not enough? You don't, you don't want me to be your king? Okay, have it your way. I'll give you a king. But you're going to reap what that means. Because every, every king, every leader on this planet of every nation, of every kingdom is human, which means they are sinful. And what happens when a human leader gets put in a position of power and authority, and we're seeing this in our own country, when you see a person there, you see all their flaws exposed. You see all their sins made public. And, and Satan, I believe, puts a big target on you because you're in a position of such influence. And so when we see leaders fall, we see leaders who disappoint us. Why are we surprised? They're human. And you can go through the whole history of the Old Testament with the Jewish people and leader after leader, king after king was wicked and evil. And sure, there were some, some good ones in the mix, like David. David was, was a great king, but David was also an adulterer and a murderer, a flawed man. So God told David, I'm going to raise up for you a king who will sit on your throne, and his kingdom will never end. He pictured this in this dream given to a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this this giant statue made of various kinds of metal whose feet were made of clay. And Nebuchadnezzar was confused at the meaning of the dream, so he called this this man named Daniel who could interpret dreams. And Daniel heard heard the, the story of the dream and sought God, and God gave him the understanding. And the understanding was this. Every different kind of metal and material represents a different kingdom that will come. And we know historically it was the Greek kingdom and the Persian kingdom and and the Roman kingdom. We know all these different kingdoms were represented in that statue. But then in that dream, a rock comes kind of out of nowhere, smashes the statue into powder, and that rock begins to grow. And that rock becomes this, this huge mountain. And when David interprets it, he says that God is going to send someone that'll be a king who will establish a new kingdom 
a bigger kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And what he was referring to was Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock of the kingdom. And Jesus, Jesus initiated a kingdom that encompasses even people all around this earth. And see, any time that you confess Jesus as Lord, you're confessing loyalty to his kingdom. It says in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, another letter that Paul wrote from prison, just like the Ephesian letter, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been moved from one kingdom to another kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Jesus talked a lot about this kingdom. All through Jesus' ministry, if there was one theme that Jesus spoke of, there was no theme that he spoke more of than the kingdom of God. Almost every parable starts in the kingdom of God is like. He told us what the kingdom of God is like. He told us how close the kingdom, it's near you. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said, he said here's what you must do to enter the kingdom. You must be born again. You must become like a little child. Jesus talked often about the kingdom because he is a king. The kingdom of Christ transcends all culture, all time and space, all geography. It's an eternal kingdom. And so in, in Philippians 3.20, Paul reminds us where our citizenship lies. It's not, it's not in America. It's not on this earth. It's in this kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when you want citizenship in a country, and this is true of many, many countries, not just ours, but you have to go through some steps like, if you want to be a naturalized United States American citizen, you've got to learn about the history. You've got to learn a little bit about our government. You have to read and write, understand a bit about English. You have to be a person of good moral character. And you have to commit to the principles of the Constitution. Now, I didn't have to do that. You know why? My parents were citizens. I was born American. I didn't have to pass any test. And you know what, that same kind of mentality transferred into my religious life that, well, my mom goes to church, my mom and dad are members of the Methodist church, and therefore, because they were, then I must be a Christian. And, and of course, I've got the baptismal certificate to show. But I realized over time that you don't enter the kingdom of God by someone else's decision. It's by your own decision, of your own choosing Jesus Christ as Lord. And by the way, the Lord means king. The authority in your life. You have to want to be part of this kingdom. You don't get in by default. And so people will sometimes wonder, I wonder if, if so-and-so is a part of the kingdom. I wonder if I'm a part of the kingdom. I've got a really simple test to determine whether you're part of the kingdom of God or not. And you may say, well, I said a prayer back at camp in 1993, or I was baptized at, P- at Pikes Peak Christian Church. Those were all good things. But here's how you can really tell if someone's a member of the kingdom of God. Who are you obeying? Who are you seeking to please? Who's the authority in your life? If it's not Jesus, I don't care how deep in the water you were plunged. I don't care how, how big a certificate you have. It means nothing if you're not following Jesus as Lord. See, Jesus is king. And everyone belongs to either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. There are only two kingdoms. You belong to one or the other. You can't belong to both. And you can't opt out of both. You belong to one or the other. We start off in the kingdom of darkness, the dominion of darkness, because of our sin. And when we accept Jesus, we're transferred to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is a good king. He's not a dictator. He's not a control freak. But he wants to lead our lives as king because he knows what's best for us. And Jesus says, if you do this, says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, if you make the kingdom a priority, If you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, 
All these things, these things meaning the things you need in life, the basic necessities, the things that, that get you through life, all these things will be given to you as well. Don't make your pursuit the things of life. Make your pursuit the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't mean make, make your pursuit a place. It's, it's, it has to do with the kingship of God. Make your pursuit having Jesus as your king and everything else will be taken care of in life. That's basically what he's saying. We as believers, when you accept Jesus, when we accept Christ as our Lord, we are transferred in the kingdom of the Son. So Paul says that. You guys are not now citizens. You weren't before. You were foreigners, but now you're citizens of the kingdom. But he goes even further, even closer. He says you're also a member of the family of God. You're part of his household. They're not guests. They're not visitors. They're part of the family. Now, what does that imply to you? When you're part of a family, it implies things like acceptance, honor, permanence. It gives you rights that you didn't have before. And, you know, this was kind of hard for the Jews to swallow. It, it was exciting for the, for the Gentiles. Ephesians were Gentiles. To say, like, wow, we get to be members of the family of God. And for the Jews to feel like, well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, God was sort of our God. Now I've got to share him with you. And that was hard for many of them. They still wanted to treat the Gentiles as second-class citizens. They wanted to treat them differently. They didn't understand that God actually loves all of people equally. God's not a respecter of persons. What that means is God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't have favorites, and we shouldn't either. Galatians chapter 3 describes the equality that we have in the Lord. Listen to this. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God or children of God through faith. For as many of us, as, or many as you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean he erases your nationality or erases your gender. He erases your culture. What he says is this. There is no one better than another. You are all one in Christ. You are equal siblings sharing a common faith and a common father. The other day we were in our car with our grandson. He's almost four years old. And we're expecting our second grandson from, from Tyler and Corinne in April. And he's going to be a little boy. So, so Aiden was talking about his little brother and how he's going to share his toys with his brother when he comes. I thought it was pretty cute, sharing all your toys, your stuffed animals. And, and then he said... I'm going to share my daddy with my baby brother, too. Oh, that's so sweet. Going to share his daddy with his baby brother. Well, I want to test him a little bit. And I says, how about mommy? Are you going to share mommy? Silence. (laughs) He never did answer. I think that's going to be harder. I think it's going to be harder to share mommy. And I think the Jews kind of felt like that. Like, I know God loves all of you, but he's kind of like our God. No, you get... (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. That's right. That's right. Someone's paying attention back there. But you know what? The Jews weren't the only ones that had trouble accepting outsiders. You know what's sad in our history is that many Christians have had the same attitude for people of different races. I mean, it wasn't too long ago in our culture when racism was a much bigger issue. I know it's still in places today, but much bigger issue, much more violent issue back 
in the 50s and 40s and 60s and middle part of last century. That's why tomorrow is a very significant day for many people. should be for all of us. It's a celebration of the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. But it's not so much about his birthday. It's the fact of his legacy. What he fought for with equal rights for all people. Back in the 1950s, one of the most outspoken proponents of the movement was Billy Graham. Billy Graham took a lot of heat for his support of Dr. King. There are churches that boycotted his crusades because of that. There there are churches that took out newspaper advertisements saying, the scripture says we are not to mingle with them. Can you believe that? That in our culture, that was the attitude at the time. And what bothered Dr. Graham was that he said, our crusades are too white. They're lily white. And our Lord died for all people. We got to change that. And so, so an event happened that was very pivotal. It was in the 1950s, it was in the South. There was a big crusade they were having down there. And uh, African-American people were invited. But the ushers put a rope in the back saying they get to sit in the back. We'll sit in the front. And Gra- Graham went down to the head usher and says, I want you to remove that rope. He said, no, sir, I will not. So during the crusade, Billy Graham's up on the podium. He leaves the podium, marches down, walks right past all the ushers, takes the rope, and rips it down. And he says, we will never put that up again. Dr. Graham says this, until we come to recognize the Prince of Peace and receive his love in our hearts, the racial tensions will increase, racial demands will become more militant, and a great deal of blood will be shed. But it shouldn't be. A great deal of blood was already shed to unite us when Jesus died on the cross. You know, the real, there should be no such thing as a white church or a black church or an Asian church or a Latino church or a Messianic Jewish church. There is a church that's doors are open to everybody where everyone is welcome, where everyone welcomes one another because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't you see that? I hope you don't look at people differently and look down your nose at anybody else as less than you. It says we are members of the household of God. I love the term members. The Bible doesn't use the word membership like we talk about in churches. We talk about people becoming members of a church. But the concept is there. But the problem in our culture is that membership has been so watered down. I mean, I, I'm a member of a gym. Nobody ever calls me when I fail to show. No, nobody cares whether I'm succeeding or not. They want one thing, my regular payment. If I don't do that, they're going to call me. So membership means very little in, in many circles. There, several years ago, about 10 years ago, a gentleman in our church had photographs to share with me, and he says, Darren, you're going to have to establish an account on Pinterest. You're going to have to become a member of Pinterest for me to share the pictures with you. I don't, Pinterest? What's that? So, so I, okay, I'll do it. I, I don't need to do it other than to see these pictures, so I'll do it. I, I set up an account on Pinterest, and then I started getting these email notifications saying, so-and-so is following you on Pinterest. All these ladies in the church following you on Pinterest. <laughs> I went, that sounds so creepy. I don't want to go anywhere on Pinterest because someone's going to say, guess where Pastor Darren was on Pinterest? I mean, I have this thing for candles. I like candles. I have things that burn and smell good. But I, I, my masculinity would be in jeopardy if the word got out. So I'm not going to go on Pinterest and look at, at girly things, okay? I'm not going to do that. So I'm an inactive member of Pinterest. 
membership can mean very little in some circles. Some people minimize it when it comes to churches, saying you don't have to be a member of a church to go there, and that's true. You can go to any church without being a member. You can do a lot of things within a church, and I hope you know that. You can go to programs. You can, you can serve in a lot of positions or certain positions where you have to be a member, but there are a lot of things within the church that you don't have to be a member to do. There are other people who demonize membership, saying, if you become a member, they're going to hound you, they're going to come knocking at your door, they're going to, they're going to steal money from you, they're going to do all these weird things, and none of those are true within Pikes Peak Christian Church. But I, but I do want to say this about membership. I believe because of this biblical word that membership means something important. There are two usages of the word member in the Bible. One has to do with family. You're a member of a family. The second is your body parts. Your hand is a member of your body. Your ear is a member of your body. Your eye is a member of your body. Your tongue is a member of the body. In fact, there's some chapters where it's focused. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is one. 1 Corinthians 12 has a lot to say about the church being the body. In fact, Paul says this. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You're not a collection of Mr. Potato Head parts. No, no, you're, you're together. You're stuck. You're different. You're unique, but you're united. It's like the, the, the ear is different from the eye, but both are needed. And the mouth is needed. And the heart is needed. All these parts are needed. They're different. They're distinct. But, but they're dependent upon one another to function well. They support one another. There's a, there's a sense of connectedness. I think this is the, this is the key both in the family and the human body. Membership means a sense of connectedness and commitment. Connectedness and commitment. It's a way you connect. Now, when it comes to church, many people bounce around to churches. It's called church shopping, and that's okay. It's kind of like dating. You you date different people, it's okay. You're trying to find the one to to settle down with, the one you want to get married. And that's the same principle in churches. Check around different churches and then settle down. Commit to one. Make make that your church, your people. There was a, a gal that left our church many years ago, and she started inviting all kinds of people within our church, saying, hey, you ought to come to my new church. It's great. They have great preaching and wonderful music and great programs for kids. And, and uh, I thought, why are you inviting all these people who already have a church to go to your church? Because honestly, there's always going to be churches with better speakers, newer music, exciting programs. And so uh, one of those invited was my assistant. I thought, that's, that's pretty audacious, asking my assistant to... Why, why would you want her to come visit to lure her over to make that her church? She never went. My assistant didn't. She says, I have my church. Amen. And I applaud her for it because it's like this. If you're married to someone, why in the world, if, if another lady came to you gals and said, you know what, there's this really great guy at work, dresses real nice, wears good cologne, has this little bit of an Australian accent, you got to meet him. You go, Why? <laughs> why? Why would I want to meet him to compare him to my husband and say, man, I wish I would have married him? And No, I'm committed to my man or guys. That's one of the reasons why I think pornography is so ridiculous. I'm committed to one already. I've got one in my hand right here. I don't, I don't need. Will there be people that are more attractive, people that smell better, look better, talk better? Yeah. And there'll be churches with better things. But I'll tell you this. Commitment means you find a people and says, those are my people. And I'm going to go with them. And yes, they're imperfect. And yes, they have issues. But I'm committed to them. 
and where they're going. They help me follow Christ, and that's my desire. That's why at our church we offer a membership class, and I encourage you, shop around, look at this church, check it out, kick the tires, kick the elders, just don't kick the pastors. (laughs) You can kick me if you want to, that's okay, I'm tough. Um, But we want you to know what you're committing to, and we want you to say, this is my home. I want to I go with these people, and I want to grow with these people, and I want to serve and, and do God's work with these people. And so next Sunday at 11 o'clock, at, at, actually the next two weeks, we have a membership class. Come, check it out. Learn what, learn, the, learn what this church is all about, where we're going, what God's vision is for this church, and see if this is a place that you really want to anchor down. But move beyond dating to settling. If it's not this place, then find another place. But, but find a people that you'll be connected to and committed to. Because when you are, you start to treat people differently. You, you, you talk to people like they're brothers and sisters. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, Paul says this. Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Do, do, good, do good to everyone, but especially to those who belong to the household of faith. Especially to those, especially to your family, because you've committed to them. You're connected to them. That's why people in a church will take a meal to someone when they've gone into surgery. It's why they'll take up a collection in their small group to help a family that's struggling. That's why when they see someone or notice someone is absent for a while, we'll pick up a phone and say, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. What's going on? When you're not committed or connected, it's hard to do that because you don't know if people want that kind of follow-up. So, he goes from here. You're citizens of the kingdom. He brings you even closer. You're a member of God's family. But he goes one step even further when Paul says that you are a holy temple built together into a dwelling place for God's spirit. What he's saying here is that as a church, as members of the church, we are stones in the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. The intimacy of, a, of the stones in a building one upon another, cemented together, leaning on each other, almost immovable. He's saying that's what you're, you're, you, you are being made into, this building in which God will dwell by his spirit. Now, the reason I inserted the word stones there is because it's used in another place in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter says, you yourselves are living stones and are being built up into a spiritual house. Paul mixes a lot of metaphors And this one is, you know, stones that move, stones that are being built, that are growing. But he's trying to help us to see that this this building isn't stagnant. There are some parts that are fixed. He says, first of all, there's a cornerstone. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone of the building. And and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what he's referring to there is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. He's not speaking of Old Testament prophets. He's speaking of New Testament prophets. Otherwise, he would have said the prophets first, the prophets and the apostles. He's saying the apostles and the prophets came. They, they laid the, the doctrine and the design of the church. The foundation is already laid. It doesn't need to be redesigned. It doesn't need to be rebuilt. It doesn't need to be expanded. The foundation, the cornerstone, is already in place. And this is a temple now in which Jesus is raising up walls, new walls. Think about the cornerstone, for example. The cornerstone takes two walls and perfectly aligns them where they should be. And in a sense, Jesus became the the unifying force between the Gentiles and the Jews to bring them together into one structure. And you and I, as we come to Christ, are being added to this building as it grows. And why is it growing? If the temple was, was destroyed, I mean, in 70 AD, the, the temple was destroyed. Jesus prophesied it. It wasn't needed anymore for sacrifices. Sacrifices were done. The, the work of the priest was done. Why, why does God need a temple? 
Because another purpose of the temple was it was the dwelling place of God. If you go back to the Old Testament, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the presence of the Lord filled the temple so much that the priests could not even carry out their functions. It was so powerful. God wants to display his glory through his living temple called the church. Now, the Jews idolized the temple. They had their temple, and they got, they got to where it became almost an idol to them. And the, the Ephesians had their temple. They had the temple of Artemis, their Greek goddess. Very prominent temple in the Asian empire. People came from all over to worship the goddess Diana at this magnificent temple. But, but God says, I, I don't need either one of them. I'm building a different temple. In fact, listen to Paul. Paul says in, in Acts chapter 17, he describes what God is up to. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by man. So I, I've been to Italy. I've seen these great cathedrals, ornate, expensive. There's gold. There's statues. I mean, just things are very beautiful and ornate. But you know what I've, I've felt when I've been in those places? A deadness. There is no spirit here. It's a building, but it's hollow. And I've been to many big churches in our country. There's some magnificent Protestant churches in the United States of America. But I have to tell you, you walk in that building, and God's presence is not in that building. God does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. Do you know where he dwells? In a building made by his hands, that building being the church made up of people made in his image who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Get this. This is what he's, what he's saying is he comes to dwell in us. Remember, Jesus says, I will build what? My church. I will build it. And I said at Christmas Eve, some of you are probably shocked, that, the, that Jesus may not have been a carpenter. He may have been a stonemason because the word for Jesus that they translate carpenter is the word for builder. It doesn't say what materials he's using, just as Jesus was a builder. And the assumption is he was a carpenter. The truth is he probably was more of a stonemason because most things are made out of stone in, in Jerusalem and that region. And it makes sense when he, Jesus is the cornerstone and he's building a building made of other stones. He's a builder and he's a mason and he's building his church. And what goes in the church? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 reminds us, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That word you is plural, by the way. He's speaking of you collectively. Do you not know that you, church, are God's temple? That God dwells in you by his spirit? What he's saying is it's a present reality. Think about it. Just think about this for a moment. God is living in us together through his spirit. Isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that incredible to think? When you think back of the Old Testament, the glory fills the temple. God says, now I want my glory to fill this temple. Isn't that incredible to think what God is doing in our midst? I've spoken at a lot of funerals and quoted uh, from, from Revelation chapter 21, where it says, and they heard a loud voice saying, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. And I've talked to the congregation at those funerals and said, Aren't you looking forward to that day when we are so close to God that he makes his dwelling with us and we will be his and he will be ours? And then one day I was reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and I came across this passage. It's a powerful passage. 
Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you realize what Paul is saying there? He's not talking about the future. He's talking about right now. He says, this isn't a future reality when God is that close to you. It is right now. God is living within you as a church. God is not only living within you, he's walking among you. See, sometimes when I go to church, I picture God up on this, like he's up on, the, he's, up on a, he's up on a throne and we're singing as if God is somewhere up there sitting and we're worshiping him. But, but what Paul's saying is that God's not up there, he's out there. He's walking in our midst. Do you get that? Do you feel that? Are you aware of that? That God is moving among us through his spirit. That that's what he desires to do. Do you hear his voice? Do you feel his touch lifting your burdens? Maybe bringing you healing? Do you know that he's right there to hear your cries? He's not, he's not distance. See, what Paul's trying to tell us is those who are very far from God have been brought so very near. You've not just been brought from the outside in. You've been made citizens, but it's better than that. You've been made members of the family, but it's even better than that. God has come to live within your midst. Isn't that incredible? Every Sunday when we gather together as a body, there's, there's a sense of awe. I'm feeling it right now, a sense of awe. God has said, I'm right here. Do you acknowledge me? Are you listening to what I'm saying to you? Even if you're new today, you might feel this is kind of weird, kind of spooky. I don't want to make it spooky. I'm just trying to be very real. God wants to be real to us and wants us to know how deeply he loves us, how accepting he is of us when we've given our our hearts to Jesus Christ. And I don't know where you stand with God today, and I don't know where your relationship with him is, but I hope that you acknowledge the fact that he's right here today, right now.